Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. This is Volume 9. My name is Dana, and I am joined by my regular co-host for this series. Mike, how are you today? I am doing well, Dana. Thank you. Excellent, Mike. And so we have another special guest joining us. I, I want to introduce the listeners to my friend, Dylan Bruff. Dylan, how are you today, sir? Dana, I'm doing great. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I'm uh, very excited. I've been looking forward to this. I've been taking notes and memorizing every word that you guys have said excellent. so that I can be able to have some fodder to work with there. Excellent. Uh, before we get going, uh, you know, you're a fellow podcaster. Can you talk just a little bit about the podcast that you do? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, man, I've just been, you know, when you kind of some, put something on hiatus and you don't get around to really taking it off the, the internet <laughs> for a while because you don't want to accept the fact. I had to relocate for work, so my podcast is kind of an on, on hiatus, but I want to bring something back. But yeah, it's called Look. Um, it's just everywhere podcasts can be found. It's just called Look. We don't have that many episodes, but but we'll be back. We'll be back soon. Excellent. All right. Well, you know the rules of the game. Uh, what we do on this episode is we recommend movies that were released before the year 2000. In the interest of keeping these episodes at, at a somewhat timely length, I am going to not be doing picks today. I'll just be giving observations and my thoughts on Mike and Dylan's picks. So, Dylan, since you are our special guest today, uh, I'm going to turn the first <clears throat> pick over to you uh, for Volume 9 of the 20th Century Movie Club. The floor is yours, sir. All right. So my first pick is a good example of uh, someone who's best observed kind of in the vacuum of their prime, namely a 1985 Chevy Chase. Here he is in Fletch. You seen Fletch? Oh, yeah. I'm seriously considering changing the name of the show to the 1985 Movie Club because there are so <laughs> many films that are recommended in 85. Fletch is terrific. It is, and you said it best, Chevy Chase in his prime, because I love 1980s Chevy Chase. I've already recommended two movies on this uh, this series, being Vacation and Funny Farm. And Fletch might be damn near his perfect film for the 1980s. Mike, what do you think about Fletch? So as we've kind of talked a little, I think it's a, first of all, I think it's a great recommendation. I think it's such a classic 80s movie, uh, you know, for kind of the movies that we're talking about here. As you and I have talked about a bit, Dana, I'm not the biggest Chevy Chase fan on the face of the earth. What I will say about Fletch, and I haven't seen it for quite a while, but what I will say is I think it is kind of like what you said, 100% his sort of archetypal performance. Everything that, that Chevy brings to the table as an actor, as a comedian, it's all on display in Fletch. I, I would say if somebody said, hey, I've never seen a Chevy Chase movie, can you give me the one that just is the perfect Chevy Chase movie, I would probably recommend Fletch. I think it is yeah. it is the movie that is sort of his signature and his foundational movie. So I think it's a great recommendation for Dylan to start us off with here. And sticking with that theme, as Dana kind of alluded to, the, the 80s is just like, seeping out of this thing. I mean, the soundtrack is synth heavy. Uh, Harold Faltermeyer, I think his name is, did the soundtrack. And then they threw in a single from one of, you know, some diva from the 80s, directed by Michael Ritchie, who did Bad News Bears, uh, you know, among a, a series of moderately successful kind of goofy comedies from the late 70s through the early 90s. Uh, one of the writers on Cool Runnings, which I think is impressive. So he plays Erwin Fletcher, an L.A. bachelor and investigative reporter who happens upon the story of his career, kind of half stumbles, but also with something he's been working on. Anyway, his his incognito like investigative efforts 
they put his life at risk in times, but the quirky mannerisms he employs and kind of reveals these connections and allows him to uh, get some information and eventually implicates some pretty high up public figures. So in past episodes of the show here, you've talked at length about the director's influence on the film and kind of some of the stylings contributed to a successful product. But I think that's not really the case here. Uh, Fletch is a pick for me because it's all Chevy Chase. I mean, the writing is good as well. I think surprisingly for a movie where Chevy Chase has mentioned in a a recent interview with Norm MacDonald that this was like his favorite role simply because he was allowed to just show up and be himself. Um, And I think that's great because it definitely shows the the charm is there. Everything's there. But also the writing is surprisingly decent. It's got a decent little plot twist. You know, just just when you think you're about to predict the plot, you know, kind of reminiscent of some other gritty 70s crime movie, it shifts a little bit. And Chevy Chase, you know, he keeps things fresh. He's got his uh, uh, his little one-liners his charm i mean i used to watch this movie uh as a teenager and by the way this was kind of like the genre that i was raised on because we had a snl uh best of vhs box set you know how they had they would release those every once in a while oh yeah so yeah we had the dan Aykroyd, the chevy chase and the gilda radner actually my first crush by the way uh (laughs) and um so he's got his his charm is there i used to watch this uh movie and try and just emulate him because he's so good with the he's so good with the ladies and everything that he seems to do that's goofy it's almost like deep underneath you know he's doing it on purpose so that he can get exactly what he wants out of the other characters and i think he's at his peak he's in his element he's as confident as ever He's the he's the quipping one liner laden boyfriend I wish I had if I were an independent strong female in the eighties. Yes. <laughs> best way I can sum it up. That's excellent. So I I first of all, a couple things I want to say. One, you touched on the soundtrack, and it's the same guy that did the soundtrack for Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, these are iconic yes. synth soundtracks, and and I absolutely I I love the soundtrack for for Fletch. But naturally, I always have to ask the question, and I always pose it to someone when they make a recommendation for a movie that is so beloved and then has a follow-up that is so the opposite. So I I have to ask you, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, what are your thoughts on Fletch Lives? Fletch Lives is, I don't know, that's a couple scenes that you watch on YouTube film. I, I just think that his charm is not there as much. The plot is just kind of... A little bit bizarre. Uh, the situations, uh, the landscape is a little bit bizarre. It's like, why did they decide to switch from his element, which is L.A. and everything that he had going on, uh, all the way to this? What did that even start off? Uh, the, it's like some house that he had inherited or something yeah. like that, wasn't it? Yeah. That- and and he shows up to uncover, you know, some more, you know, uh, I guess crooked figures, public figures or local figures that are that are there trying to. What was the storyline on that? They were trying to embed. Oh, the, oh, yeah. It had the the Graham, uh, the the televangelist guy, that was kind of that was they it, uncovered. Wasn't he played there. by Wayne Newton? I've only seen the movie one time. I can't he remember. Was, he was played. He was played by the guy that plays the. I can't think of his name. He always plays that uh, military figure. You know the. You do not understand. You get up, get down, give me forty. Oh, and, you oh, know, just Arlie Ermey. Ermey. Arlie Ermey. Yes. yes. Okay. Great character actor. Great character. Yeah. R.I.P. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, that just missed the mark there. And I don't know if it was Chevy Chase, if they were trying to do the same 
formula as the first one and just let Chevy run with it and it fell down. Or if they got too much in the way with the writing, the directing, and it could have been editing. I don't know. It just misses the mark. Mike, do you have any thoughts on Fletch Lives? Uh, the only thing I even can remotely remember about Fletch Lives, other than not thinking it was very good, is that it had, at the time, Bruce Springsteen's wife. Uh, they they got divorced shortly after the movie, so perhaps Fletch Lives was uh, was a, an even bigger impact than we know. Um, but other than that, I don't remember much about it. The one good scene is when he had the fake nose and he's playing the televangelist yeah. and he's up there doing and <laughs> Yeah, that was probably the one the one scene that's memorable. Excellent. But. All right. Well, Dylan, fantastic first pick. So we're off and running. Mike, what do you got for your first pick of uh, volume nine? So uh, my first pick is uh, actually there's a couple of different reasons I'm recommending it. One, uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, my best friend, Jeff Paulson, who has the Two Strike Noise podcast. This is one of his favorite movies, uh, and it ties into the fact that baseball season just got started. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but this felt topical. And thirdly, Dylan and I, for those who don't know, are both from Utah, and this is one of the more famous movies that was filmed in and around Salt Lake City. So so my oh. first pick is going to be uh, 1993's The Sandlot. Yes. For those who haven't seen The Sandlot before, it is a absolutely charming and delightful coming of age story about a bunch of friends playing baseball in the summer and they end up for a variety. It's, it's really just kind of a bunch of vignettes about what they're doing over the summer, but it ends up they end up running afoul of a neighbor dog called the Beast and uh, they have to uh, end up sort of challenging the Beast to retrieve something important to one of them. I don't want to say any more other than if you haven't seen this movie, this is such a great, great baseball summer coming of age movie um and like i said it was filmed in and around salt lake city uh the houses where the kids were lived was filmed less than a mile from the house i grew up in so this movie's always had a special uh place in my heart have i, I heard dylan say nice so i'm guessing yeah. you've seen it at least dylan dana oh, have you seen it well yeah. i of course absolutely and it's uh it's one of those you know, it's interesting. It's one of those quintessential classics for for me, obviously for both of you. But is it a movie? Oh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a question after uh, Dylan after I hear your thoughts about the Sandlot. But please, what are your thoughts on the Sandlot? Well, you know, as I've gotten older, you kind of lose interest in some of the more wholesome films, you know, from your youth, just because uh, you liked them because they were there and that's what you had. Uh, and then you acquire more interests and sometimes those interests, you know, I like black comedy. I like, or yeah, dark comedies. I like uh, the shock factor, different artistic elements that are in there in, you know, whether it's because I love horror films, off the wall stuff, but this one has always stood the test of time in my mind, as just being like that. Fa you could watch it anytime over and over again, sort of like how a Christmas story is with some people. And then but now that movie's ruined because of just repetition on yeah. top of repetition. And yeah, it, it kind of falls into that same bucket uh, for me as just being uh, timeless. And it's got just the right mix of everything. Soundtrack. You've got a cast that they have great chem. The chemistry there is amazing. You know, the, the storyline and just the coming of age element there. It's just a great movie. You know, this is bringing up kind of an interesting theory that I'm trying to, that's sort of just basically starting in my head right now. And that is, we're all sort of in that same age range. I'm 41. I know Mike's a couple years older than me. 
and this is a movie that when this film came out, I was I was in high school, but it was one that we all ran to go see, and, and I absolutely loved it. I'm wondering if it has been lost to the sands of time, no pun intended, uh, to to the new generation. And I'm wondering if that is because there's just so much damn content out there that some of these films just don't make it. So I just just curious if either of you think that this film is still enduring for a younger generation, if it's still, I mean, if it's still even relevant to a younger generation, Mike. Well, it's I, I'm a bit, I'm in a bit of a weird bubble here because it, it is still a very big uh, movie here in Utah for younger generations. Primarily, one, it was filmed here, but two, for those who have never been to Utah, we have a lot of Mormons, and they like family-friendly films. And so this still, I feel like, is relevant here in Utah. I don't know if it is outside, but that's one of the reasons I wanted to recommend it, because, you know, we've talked before, Dana, one of the things we try and do is highlight these movies that were important to us that may have yeah. been lost to the sands of time. And this this really, I think, fits in that category perfectly, because I'm like Dylan. I mean, you, you've heard some of my other recommendations. I just recommended Ravenous last episode. I like edgy, bloody, violent, off-the-wall movies. Those are typically my go-tos. There is something about this movie, and it's just almost wholesome naivete that just I find so comforting every time I watch this one, no matter, you know, I just watched it. I haven't watched it super recently, but I watched it last year and I still just feel so happy when I watch this movie. So if it has been lost outside of the state, I really do hope that at least the people that listen to this podcast, pick it up and listen to it because it's also just a perfect movie. If you like baseball, it, it is a, it, the myth of baseball that people that like, you know, to quote Field of Dreams, it's baseball, Ray. Uh, the myth of that is so heavy in this movie as far as what baseball means to people and, and stuff like that. It's just such a great, good time to watch. There's kind of a bit, you know, you said like a comforting movie, and it's very true when you've sort of uh, bombarded yourself when, with some out there or maybe a little bit more adult themed movies and you've had uh, violence or maybe a, a drama or something that's a little bit depressing. Uh, you can always come back to this one. It's like comfort food for your eyes and your ears. Yeah, it's like uh, kind of brings you back home again. <laughs> if You've got nothing else going on. And there's that Venn diagram where our generation kind of overlaps into this element of virality. You know, you have like viral videos, you have cult followings that are springing up out of everywhere because of the internet. But then we also, in our developmental years, we were exposed to very few things, you know, very few media and entertainment. So I think this is a perfect film for that generation and the uh, ability it has to kind of spark that, that cult following. Oh, you nailed it. That's perfect. Mike, any closing thoughts on The Sandlot? No, I, I could gush about it forever, but I think, I, I think I've think i adequately uh, relayed how much I love this movie. Absolutely. All right. So, Dylan, what do you got for your second pick of the episode? So, my second pick, 1980s The Blues Brothers. Have you seen it? Do you like it? When was the last time you saw it, I should ask? Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you first because this I think my answer is going to surprise you. <laughs> so the last time I saw it was probably two, three years ago. Um, I've seen it, you know, a half a dozen times in my life. I, I like that 
that Dylan, that you have, I think sometimes I don't want to speak for Dana. I try and get a little too clever with my recommendations on this show and have sometimes just ignored classics. I love that you just recommended the Blues Brothers because it's like, duh, why the hell have we not talked about this movie already? Like, And I got to operate on my level, too. <laughs> no, I mean, it's amazing. I, I love this movie. It's it's such a good time. It, it's probably I would say it's my second favorite John Landis movie. Uh, the My favorite favorite is a stay tuned uh, it's american werewolf in london but i mean this is just such a, a good good solid movie it really bridges nicely that sort of late 70s transitioning into early 80s aesthetic because it's kind of got 70s humor and grit but 80s over the top sort of action and and stuff like that so i, I think this is a great recommendation but dana why are we going to be surprised by your answer you know how every once in a while movies fall through the cracks Oh, I'm so <laughs> This is a big movie to fall. That's a big That's, crack, I, Dana. I know. Especially with with uh, John Belushi in it. I know. I know. This is one <laughs> that I've never seen. You know, I've been embarrassed to admit that I've I haven't seen other films in the past. And look, I've caught I've caught snippets of this film. I know the movie's fantastic, but I cannot begin to tell you why I've never seen it. The planets never aligned for me, for me to actually sit down and spend two hours and watch this movie. So I, I'm, I'm very happy to announce that I will be watching it tonight. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you say that because for the same reason you can't or that you've never seen it. I can't remember the first time I did see it. <laughs> it's oh, just kind of always, always there. And I revisit it time and time again, which, by the way, I'm always surprised at how long of a film it is for being a comedy, uh, especially for back then. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a good snapshot of Chicago blues and R&B culture, you know, like Mike touched on that gritty feel to it, the industrial district. The opening shot is that industrial, you know, district of Chicago, I guess America in general at the time. Great comedy performances too from actors and music icons even that helped kind of shape that culture. And it comes from a special window of time that saw the rise of a new generation of comedians and a comedic genre that SNL helped to usher in and create, which I think is really cool. And that's where the value comes from in my mind. You take that and you mix it with the music of the time, the fact that all these people, young and old, were alive and ready and willing and in the spotlight to be in this movie, it just makes it the perfect recipe, I think, culturally. I understand there was a sequel made. Is that worth watching? Blues 2000 is worth watching if you are a musician or if you are a big fan of uh, music spanning from the time this one was made to uh, Blues Brothers 2000. Beyond that, not much not much going on. I, it's been a while since I've seen it, though. Mike, what do you think? Have you seen that one? Yep, I have. And and I think that's an accurate statement. It, it I think Blues Brothers 2000 is perfectly fine for a one-time watch. It's a it's a watch it and forget it. it. It's not a sequel that comes even close to the original, but it's not so offensively bad that it like retroactively, you know how sometimes cash in sequels are just so bad that they like retroactively make the previous movie shittier in your eyes because you now have to think of this sequel. It's not that bad. It's a it's a fine watch it once and then never think about it again. It happened. That's basically yep. it. It's oh. like, hey, guys, look what happened. And we made a movie about it. Uh, but I mean, just to go, you can't undervalue the I mean, I've got the cameos pulled up here like 
So Cab Calloway, towards the beginning, like the second or third scene in the movie, he's telling the boys to go to church and seek inspiration. They walk in the church. James Brown is leading a raucous sermon, you know, that concludes uh, with the congregation doing a bunch of backflips and pirouetting through the aisles as Shaka Khan gives a choir solo. <laughs> and it, it's like the Boulevard of Broken Dreams painting, you know, in movie form. Uh, Frank Oz, Carrie Fisher, <laughs> who's only has like one or two lines and her character is simply named Mystery Woman. Uh, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Don and Murphy Dunn, you know, John Candy's in there, of course, Henry Gibson. Oh, it's always fun to see Henry Gibson show up in those 80s comedies. Steven fucking Spielberg has a cameo in this movie. Yeah. That's how many yes. cameos so there are many in cameos. this movie. Yeah. <laughs> how does a movie like this get made today or does it ever? No, too much content. Too much. Too much, yeah, there, too much out there. Yeah, and there's and, and this is really, you know, again, kind of talking about that sort of the 70s new wave of Hollywood. Landis came about in that era. You know, he's a contemporary of Friedkin and Spielberg and Lucas and oh, Coppola. Yeah. And so many of those movies were such a product of the time and the circumstances in which they were made that there's no way this movie. I mean, this movie had I, I'm not going to bother looking up the budget, but it had a budget. I mean, it was not a low budget affair. And there's no way that you get the kind of budget necessary to make a movie like this today. It's just not how the industry works. The one thing I will say is a lot of people think that the new way is much worse. But the reality is the way movies are made now is kind of the way movies have always been made. It's just we grew up in an era when the rules could get broken. Uh, but that was really a very specific point in time. And so I, I don't think it gets made today. All those films from that time, they are characters in themselves. I mean, you got just from Landis, you know, Coming to America, Spies Like Us, The Three Amigos. I mean, those are just, you can't watch those and not at least be charmed by them in some way uh, or another. And to take it back to Fletch, to carry it over to Fletch, uh, that one, I was going to jokingly call it like the yuppie white version of Beverly Hills Cop, because it's that formula, that recipe with those, uh, the pool of actors they have at the time and just everything else going on. And it just, for some reason, works. And won't work again. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching that film tonight. Like that is every Sunday night I try to watch a movie, especially typically now that we've been doing this show, I, uh, I, I tend to try to catch up on the films that I haven't seen throughout this ongoing series. So I'm really looking forward to watching this one. And I, and I honestly really it's not one of those ones where like I know the plot and I know the ending. I have no idea. So I'm I know I'm probably about close to 40 years late to the experience, but I'm looking forward to it. So with that being said, we're on to Mike. Really, really oh, quick. Dude. Yeah, Can ahead. I actually add yes. something on Blues please, Brothers? Please. I, I just wanted to add on to something that Dylan talked about, which is the importance of music in this movie and most specifically the importance of music in this movie to me. This movie, the first time I saw it, was really my gateway to soul and blues. I mean, this was the movie that really introduced me to Cab Calloway and Aretha Franklin. And for me, most importantly, uh, Sam and Dave, because uh, the Blues Brothers album, their, their album that they released, Briefcase Full of Blues, is predominantly a bunch of covers of old blues and soul songs. And so I sought out the original versions and both Briefcase Full of Blues and the original versions of all those songs are just amazing. So if you like, like Dylan said, if you like music at all, 
this is an essential movie, regardless of the quality of the movie. This is an essential movie into a genre of music that in the 60s and 70s was just running at the top of its game. And so I really do think if you haven't seen it, and I know you're a music fan, Dana, I'm guessing because you used to be a DJ. Absolutely. Uh, you really need to, I, I do agree, you need to check this out tonight. I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to it. For the life of me, I tell you, I was worried this one was going to come up before I saw it. <laughs> I knew this movie was going to come up. So uh, you did you did good, Dylan. You did really good. All right. So, Mike, what do you got for your second pick today? So my other two picks um, are ones that, uh, not unlike Fletch and the Blues Brothers, uh, there's some directors that I sort of feel like we need to get on our, our list of movies that we're recommending. And so I kind of picked the next two based on directors that I think should be represented. And they're not necessarily going to be considered the best movies of these directors, but they are my favorites. Um, the other thing that we're kind of sorely lacking is Westerns. And there's so many good Westerns that uh, as we go through, I will recommend more. But this one to me, uh, my first pick is one that I am, I think kind of covers a couple of different bases. One, it gets a director on our list who should be on there too. It is a very, very good entry level Western. A lot of people are immediately hesitant when you talk about Westerns because it Film-wise, it's a bit of a dead genre. And three, it is a who's who of actors, 80s actors who would go on to be much, much bigger and much and just reliable, solid actors. So my next recommendation is 1985's uh, Lawrence Kasdan Western Silverado. For those who haven't seen Silverado, it's the story of four disparate uh, cowboys who end up coming together in this town of Silverado where like all traditional Westerns it's run by corrupt people. And these uh, four guys played by Kevin Klein, Scott Glenn, Danny Glover, and a very young on the cusp of fame, Kevin Costner uh, in one of, I think sort of his first roles that sort of starts that run and they have to set things right basically take their righteous vengeance on those who've wronged them it is a delightful classic throwback western but with 80s uh, sensibilities and lawrence kasdan's sort of very modern directorial style at least modern for 1985 uh, have either of you seen this one i'll go first so Mike, let me ask you, and I need an I need an honest answer right now. If I was to pick one movie to watch tonight for the first time, should it be The Blues Brothers or should it be Silverado? It should be The Blues Brothers. Okay. There's no question it should be The Blues Brothers. You should watch Silverado tomorrow night. I've heard of Silverado, and it's, again, this here's, here's another movie that, actually, to be fair, I don't think it was as big as The Blues Brothers as far as me recognizing and noticing that it existed. I didn't even know Lawrence Kasdan directed this, and I'm a big fan of Kasdan, and I don't know how that slipped through the cracks with as much show research I've done behind the scenes involving him, or maybe I just glossed over it and I just didn't recognize that this film exists. I've just pulled it up on Wikipedia just based on what you said, and I'm just looking at the cast, and I'm like, how the hell did I miss this? So no, I haven't seen it. I love a good Western, and I am okay. I'm, I'm excited to watch this one. That's it's being added to the list, and it's the, being added to the short list. So, Dylan, have you seen Silverado? Oh yeah, another beloved film. Yeah, from my youth. Reminds me of my dad. Kind of, you know, just uh, always hucking away, laughing, watching this thing. And I was, I was just thinking uh, as we were kind of talking about it. The this movie, you know, like there's some. 
films that take 80s and then try and insert the cowboy element into it almost ironically as a joke like bill and ted you know for example they take something and and combine themes and it, and it makes it quirky and fun this kind of does the opposite where it has uh, it, it's got like western but then it throws the 80s element in there and so you've got like kevin costner in rare form when you remember when tom hanks went through like his loud zany goofy phase uh it, it's I love seeing Kevin Costner just yelling and whooping and hollering and being goofy in this movie. Just a, a, a t like a teenage idiot, uh, re restless. Yeah, the, the fact that it's that group of actors at that time in a Western, you can't go wrong. It's, it's funny. It's got everything. Uh, it, it's got the drama there. It's got a little bit of action. The story's good. It's, I like it. Is this, a, is this an R-rated film, a PG-rated film? What, what, where's this, what's the rating on this film? Uh, PG-13. PG-13. Okay. Yeah. What this, and, and Dylan's right. I mean, Costner just is so great. And, and it's, I mean, we, we love, this is, I don't know, the second or third Costner movie on the list. Obviously, if you're talking pre-20th century movies, you're going to come up with Kevin Costner movies. But this one, Dylan's right. He's so, because he was, he was young and this was before Untouchables, before Bull Durham, before Field of Dreams. He's so wacky and it's so fun to see Kevin Costner who has a tendency to be a bit dour in a lot of his movies just so uh, free Scott Glenn does the heavy lifting of this sort of brooding serious one which Scott Glenn can do as well as any actor who's ever lived what I really like about this movie is it's a reconstruction you know we had the westerns in the 30s and 40s and 50s and then the 60s came along and we got the spaghetti westerns which were really kind of deconstructions and I love so many of those movies so many of them are so great but they were they were edgier they were more violent they were more bleak the the heroes were all anti-heroes you know if you think of like the man with no name trilogy Clint Eastwood is you know like in the good the bad and the ugly he's the good by virtue of being the least shitty one of the three but Kasdan growing up in that era of 30s and 40s and 50s westerns wanted to sort of do a reconstruction. So this is really a very, very classic Western. The good guys are good. The bad guys are bad. And it's just a, a, a lighthearted, fun time at the movies. Um, it also has an incredibly perfect score. I believe it's Bruce Broughton that did the score. And it is one of the best Western scores that you will ever hear in a movie. So yeah, it's definitely a must watch for those who also, uh, we mentioned a couple of cast members. This has a young Jeff Goldblum in it. It's got Linda Hunt. It's got Brian Dennehy. I mean, this thing is stacked top to bottom. There are literally cameos that are, John Cleese has what amounts to a cameo in this movie. That's how many good actors are in this thing. So I can't, I can't remember what he looks like in this film, but I, for some reason, just pictured him in a bowler, a bowler hat. That's uh, an accurate, that's, that's accurate. <laughs> just uh, showing up maybe with a deck of cards in his hand and then he's gone again. <laughs> it, it's just such a good time. And so if you like Westerns or if you don't and you don't think you like Westerns, this is a good gateway Western, I think. It, it really is a, yeah. a good entry level to the Western genre. It's easy to, it's easy to, to digest. It's, yeah. it's just like lighthearted, you know, it's got somebody that is, like you said, you've got uh, Scott Glenn doing the heavy list, lifting, carrying us along, and then Cosner's kind of the relief, and it's a nice mix of of everything that makes 
a good Western slash 80s film. Yeah, it's like a good bourbon. It just goes down easy. There you go. You just, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Excellent. All right, well, great recommendation, Mike. All right, Dylan, we're going to turn it over to you for your third and final pick of the episode. (laughs) Okay. 1976's The Pink Panther Strikes Again. Are you Pink Panther fans? The old school? Oh, yeah. Peter Sellers is a genius, guys. He was, I think he has a wide range, but uh, man, he's one of the best, like just slapstick, uh, deadpan uh, improv guys of the time, for sure. And and when he pairs up with Blake Edwards, it's magic. Because Blake Edwards was never like super stylistic or anything like that. He, I always imagine, or I always, uh, for some reason, associate him with like the modern romantic comedy as we know it you know he did breakfast and at tiffany's and and a bunch of the guy meet girl guy meets girl thing but he was really good at pairing up different characters and creating chemistry there so i think uh the reason it works and this is a plotless it's just like (laughs) it's a basically a marathon of just gags and uh has nothing to do with anything production value or behind the camera, it's all about Peter Sellers. That's why it's a must watch. I just think you got to experience Peter Sellers in the most creative way, falling down just like anybody else has fallen down numerous times in films. But the way he does it and the way he does those simple um, acts uh, or mishaps is genius. And it's hilarious in a way that catches you off guard every time i've seen a couple of them and like you perfectly you so perfectly put it it's plotless so i actually kind of get them mixed up so i guess the question i have for you is how did you settle on this one and if listeners if they've never seen one of the classic pink panther movies should they start with this one or can you just watch them in any order does it matter does not matter they're all the same thing it's basically just you know blake edwards creating the framework and then putting Peter Sellers in front of the camera and explaining to him what's going on, and then just things that you can't write down happen, and it makes it better. And it's, I think, one of the only times that that actually works with being, you know, if I tell you, I'm sitting here talking about this, and people are probably listening, thinking, that sounds like a terrible movie, you know, just (laughs) a, a dumb, plotless movie. But when you watch it, it's different. It's like going on. It's like watching a fails comp, uh, compilation or something. I don't know. He's just so good at that subtle physical humor and eating up the frame. And just like Chevy Chase, uh, you never know what kind of delivery you're going to get until the camera's rolling. And I think that's what makes it so genius. You can't write that part of the process. And if you try and write it, it ruins it. And today, comedies, I think, are uh, too formulaic. They think that they can just put it into a machine, put money into a machine, and then a bunch of algorithms happen, and then a comedy pops out the other end, and it's supposed to be funny. Interesting. But it's just there's no personality like it was uh, with this whole series of films. There's a couple duds, like the shot in the dark is kind of not as funny because they didn't get that yet. They they didn't get the response where people are like, hey, we actually just like seeing uh, Peter Sellers dress up in a shitty costume and uh, make an ass out of himself. You know, and and try and try and beat up uh, Kato. I, you know, it, it's just I think it's one that you're not gonna. It's not the best movie you're gonna watch. It's not the best comedy you're gonna watch. But it's one that you have to watch. Mike, do you have thoughts on the Pink Panther Strikes Again? 
So I do think it's a it's interesting that this is the one that Dylan picked uh, because I should have I, explained why I didn't even touch on that. <laughs> well, no, it's so kind of a family. Yeah, it's explain. kind of a family favorite. That's all. It was just you know, growing up, we would always watch this like uh, regularly, not on special occasions per se, but it was always one that would come back. But also, mostly the most quoted movie and uh, referenced movie when we get together as a, a family. So it's completely, I completely understand if you're scratching your head <laughs> at why I landed on this one. Uh, but that's why. No, and that's a perfect reason. I mean, that's what this show is about. This show is a, not necessarily about the best movies or whatever. It's about the movies that matter to us. Because I do love the Pink Panther series. Um, I, I haven't seen this one in a very long time. But I, I do disagree a bit. I like Shot in the Dark. I think Shot in the Dark is is a rock-solid one. What I will say is... Anytime you get Peter Sellers and I think almost as importantly, Herbert Lom playing his boss, uh, which they are both in this one. And they're both uh, Shakespeare uh, trained or, you know, they have experience in the heavy stuff. So it's and, nice to see them in the light. And they are so great together. Uh, for those who haven't seen any of the Pink Panther movies, you know, Sellers plays the famous Inspector Clouseau and, and Herbert Lom plays his his supervisor who is continually infuriated by Clouseau. Ultimately, in this movie, if I remember correctly, basically driven insane by Clouseau. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and Sellers... What makes them both so good, and we've talked about this before, Dana, when you mentioned Naked Gun, neither one of these guys acts like they're in on the joke. Yeah. That's what makes it work. They are playing these roles so seriously uh, <laughs> that it just makes it a, a, a great time to watch. And, and that's the other reason I question this one is I think up until Peter, this is sort of the last one where Peter Sellers was really actively involved. His health was getting bad. There's some after this where there's using, they're using a lot of stunt doubles and even replacements. But up to this one, so Pink Panther, uh, Shot in the Dark, Inspector Clouseau, Pink Panther Returns, they're all worth watching. And so I do think this is a great recommendation. Uh, but I would say if you want to watch a Pink Panther, just pick Dylan's right. Just pick one and watch it. I think honestly, I'm sitting here thinking again, like, why did I land? But because they were all, you know, watched growing up. But I think it's honestly because this one has the most uh, disguises on it. This, the most stupid disguises that fall apart on camera. The, the part where he's trying to, I mean, I'm not going to give away too much, but he's trying, his nose starts melting at one point and, and he tries to push it up and it makes it pig million, you know, it makes it a pig shaped nose. And then uh, Dreyfus is just sitting there laughing and they're both just sitting there laughing. And it's one of those moments where you laugh only because they're laughing. And so, yeah, the chemistry is great between them. You're absolutely right, Mike. Well, let me ask you this, uh, because I was just kind of curious. Are those Steve Martin reboots any – are they worth a watch? I don't even look at the poster. Okay. I think it's an insult. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen them. I've never seen them, but I was just kind of curious if either of you had seen them. Because, you know, let's be let's be fair. I mean, to be fair to Steve Martin, he's done some genius things, but this one – just the trailers alone were keeping me away, but I was just maybe thinking maybe, hey, if I've missed something good, I'd be interested in knowing, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. 
perfect example of being in on the joke. Uh, yes. uh, the the yes. Steve Martin ones. Every the first one has some redeeming qualities because Kevin Klein plays Dreyfus, and Kevin Klein one of his greatest strengths is he never acts like he's in on the joke. So he's okay. But Steve Martin is, and I'm with you. I think Steve Martin's a genius. He's multi-talented in, in a variety of things. But his worst movies are the ones where he is in on the joke. He's acting like he knows he's supposed to be funny. Yes, and, I was just going to say that. And he sits, that. It's almost like they're waiting for a reaction, like looking around like, huh? What do you think, yeah. guys? Like they're waiting, <laughs> well, they're waiting for the laugh track to kick yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Ruins it. No, that's you're right. That's all I've got to add. Let me ask you this, just off the cuff here. Steve Martin in The Jerk, he's not acting like he's in on the joke on that one, correct? I would say not. I think he's over the top, but he's still it's it's such a fine line of playing over the top while not acting like you know you're playing over the top. And I think in The Jerk, he he hits that. He he does tether that sort of fine line. That's yeah, and I, I think that's only possible if it's an uh, individual effort and that other people let it happen and trust that. Like, I think a lot of times, I at least I like to think this in The Jerk, he's kind of creating the character and the situation as it happens. And uh, the end result is it's funnier because of that. Excellent. All right. Well, Mike, we're going to turn it over to you to, to close it out with your final pick of the episode. So my final pick is another one that I feel like we need to get a, a director on the list. Uh, and a lot of people would not. This recommendation is very much a uh, I feel like it's kind of a love or hate uh, uh, movie. But for those who love it, like me, they really love it. Um, and the director's Walter Hill. And and most people would say, well, if you're going to go with Walter Hill, you're going to do The Warriors or you're going to do 48 Hours. I am not. I love both of those movies. But by far and away, it's not even a contest. By far and away, my favorite Walter Hill movie is 1984's Streets of Fire. His rock and roll fable, as the title indicates. Um, for those who haven't seen it, Streets of Fire is a bonkers movie. It, it, it is the definition of a blank check. 48 Hours was so successful that the studio basically told Walter Hill, you have a blank check, make whatever you want to make. And so he made his dream movie, which is basically, as he said in interviews, everything he ever wanted to see in a movie growing up. It's got rock and roll. It's got Soldiers of Fortune returning home. It's got outlaw motorcycle gangs. It's got beautiful women and kissing in the rain. It, it is everything all in a blender. And what I love most about it is uh, it, the plot basically is Diane Lane plays a uh, famous musician named Ellen Aim, the lead singer of Ellen Aim and the Attackers. And she is performing in her old hometown and she is kidnapped by a motorcycle gang led by Willem Dafoe playing Raven Shattuck. That tells you everything you need to know about this movie is the bad guy's name is Raven Shattuck. And when Ellen gets kidnapped, Reva Cody, played by Deborah Van Valkenburg, contacts her brother, uh, Ellen's ex-boyfriend, Tom Cody, a mercenary played by Michael Pere, basically says... Ellen's been kidnapped, come home. He immediately comes home and then proceeds to punch, shoot, kick, 
drive uh, and do everything he can to rescue Ellen. It is uh, a movie with music by Jim Steinman. It's just such a weird fantasy and I love it so much for that. Have either of you guys seen this one? I have not. I'm I'm familiar with this one. And and let me ask you this real quick, Mike, before I just turn it over to Dylan for his his thoughts. Is this a movie that has experienced a resurgency over the past, say, five or six years? Because I've growing up, I I didn't even I'd never even heard of this film. Over the past five or six years, I hear about it all the time. So I'm just curious, is this a film that maybe didn't do well in the box office when it was released and it, it's it's really getting its its second wind over the past few years? It did not do well in the box office. It actually more or less really, really wiped out any of the goodwill that uh, Walter Hill had generated with 48 Hours and The Warriors and Southern Comfort, the movies he'd made up to that point. I think what has happened is, uh, one, it was pretty hard to find for a long time. Where a lot of people of our vintage saw it is it played on HBO a lot. And so a lot of people like me just watched it all the time when it was on because it, it was pg so it could play during the day. And for those who are too young to know what it was like pre-streaming, uh, you were at the mercy of whatever HBO would play during the day. And if they had a movie like this that wasn't a kid's movie but was PG-rated, they would play the shit out of them. And so I saw it a lot. I don't know if it was HBO or Showtime, but I saw it a lot on cable growing up. And it's such a unique film that I think for a lot of people in their late 30s, early 40s, it always stuck with us. I, I first saw this, I was, you know, eight, nine when I first saw it. And this is a movie that always stuck with me. And then as we've gotten older and we have buying power and things like that, there's been a resurgence. It just got a, a release a couple years ago from Shout Factory, beautiful restored Blu-ray. Um, and it's so it is one of those movies that I think it's had a resurgence because the people who grew up with it, it's now available and we're old enough to kind of you know, I don't know, talk about it on a podcast yeah. <laughs> that people will listen to um, to kind of spread the word. So, it, and it is just such a unique film that, that you don't, it's not perfect. It's a it's a little weirdly paced. Not all of the acting's great. Michael Perret has never been what one would call a a gifted thespian. But it's just such a uniquely Walter Hill kind of movie uh, that I think it does. When you see it, it sticks with you. Even if you don't like it necessarily, it sticks with you. Uh, so much of it's shot on sound sound stages to give it that kind of fake, weird, not quite reality look. And so it just it looks cool for lack of a better term so yeah i haven't seen this one but i will watch it tonight and here's why i looked it up here and i'm looking at the genre uh and it's an action crime drama musical romance thriller <laughs> so i and also reason number two bill paxton plays a bartender in it i don't even know the context there and i don't have to know uh, it looks fun and also just the uh the way you're describing it, would you put this more of like middle of the road, every man's movie, uh, every gal's movie, or would you call it more pulpy or would you define it more as a rock opera? Uh, I would say it's pulp. It, it, it's definitely very pulpy. The it, I wouldn't call it a rock opera because there, the, while music is... It, 
intricately woven into the DNA. There's not what you would call traditional musical numbers, except it's bookended by two live performances by Ellen Aim and the Attackers. Uh, but it's not a traditional like musical. But what it is is 100% pure pulp. This is a a movie about you know hard men and and gorgeous but damaged women and, and I mean. Not to give, it's not really a spoiler because you can imagine in a movie like this, the good guy and the bad guy are going to fight. Michael Pere and Willem Dafoe have a fight with sledgehammers in front of everybody (laughs) in the town. Are there guitars attached to the sledgehammers? There's not. (laughs) There should be. I wish there was. But Willem Dafoe is wearing leather overalls. He is wearing nothing but leather overalls. No (laughs) shirt, no anything, just pure leather overalls. Like, this movie's amazing. It really is just, it's such a creative blast that even if like, you're like, well, it's not that great. There's nothing like it. So you might as well watch it because I can guarantee you, you're not going to, it's one of those movies you're going to get done watching it and go, well, I've never seen anything like that before. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's what I'm, that's what I'm comes to mind immediately if you're describing that's why it's so appealing to me is um it's kind of got that the polished like i want to say uh like musical turned movie you know hairspray rent that type of thing mixed with the pulp uh and that is right down my alley i can't wait to watch it you know mike for some reason you you mentioned when you said musical and 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 crime drama and everything do you know what popped in my head do you remember that really ill faded steven bochco show called cop rock yeah i do this is not dissimilar. Oh. I mean, honestly, like Cop Rock was terrible, but in terms of what they were kind of trying to go for, this isn't this isn't dissimilar to that. And Dylan, have you heard of Cop Rock? Cop Rock no, before? I haven't. This is great. You're introducing me to an, a whole new world. Well, this I had let, not. Let me tell you something. I don't want to say more than that, except that this was by Stephen Bochco, who had created Hill Street Blues, which is again uh, an incredible cop drama and his follow-up cop rock which i'm sure you can find episodes of it on youtube it defies explanation and then of course he redeemed himself with nypd blue so i hope you'll check that out and get back to me on that one yes i mean just the name in itself is <laughs> it's, you know it remember but it could either be really good are really terrible. It's, and either way, for some reason, you're just like glad you watched it. I don't know. There's just some films like that where you're like, eh, I'm still glad I checked it out. It's called Cop Rock. You can say that I watched a movie called Cop Rock oh, now. Well, it's a TV series. It was a TV series. Oh, so, is it? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. That's what I'm saying. You're, I was gonna, you were going yeah, to find gonna episodes. Make a con- yeah. I was going to make a comment on like how it, it, it uh, would be interesting to see like a, a – uh, creator of TV series crime drama do what they can't do in that setting, but do it in film. But that makes more sense now based on what you were saying about it. So cool. I just pulled it up on YouTube The the pilot as of recording, the pilot is available as well as several of the we'll call them musical numbers uh, are <laughs> also available on YouTube. So. so only on the 20th Century Movie Club, I promise you we're probably one of the only podcasts <laughs> out there right now that is even talking about cop rock and i'm i don't even know if it's a good thing that i brought that up and i don't know if we're ready to introduce this to the listeners but it's out there 
All right, so what we like to do at the end of each episode is we like to let the listeners know where they can find the movies if they want to watch them. So we like to use the Just Watch app. And again, I always like to point out we're not sponsored by them. It's just a, a fantastic app that lets you see exactly where the movie in question is streaming, if it's via a, a subscription service, to rent or to buy. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you for your first three picks. As I like to do because of our good friend Adam Risky, if you go on eBay and search Cop Rock, you can find the original press material, which has a Cop Rock logo with an outline of a gun that just looks brilliant for 25 bucks. Right. So uh, ah. there we go. That should be a new recurring segment on every episode. I just I think, the merch segment. But I think you should I think you always should give Adam credit every time you do. Yes, that. that's perfect. Oh, I 100 percent will. And I think it's only it's only doable for like, uh, you know, goofy things like cop rock. Yeah. And uh, always assume that he al- already owns it. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> um, first movie I recommended was The Sandlot. The Sandlot uh, is available for streaming everywhere you can rent or purchase streaming videos. So your Amazons, your YouTubes, your uh, Apples and Voodoos. Uh, and it's available for both rent and purchase. Silverado is uh, streaming everywhere for rent and purchase, but it's also streaming uh, on Voodoo uh, as ad supported. We've recommended Voodoo supported before you get a few ads throughout but for the most part it's a it's a great way to catch some free films that aren't streaming anywhere and the nice thing about voodoo ad supported is voodoo doesn't because they're not a subscription service you just sign up for an account and you can watch these movies literally free you don't have to pay a subscription on top of uh, watching them Final one is uh, Streets of Fire that is available for rent and purchase anywhere online. It's also, if you have a Stars subscription, it's streaming on the Stars app. If you don't have a Stars subscription, you can get one for, I think it's $8.99 a month. Um, so it's it's a pretty cheap uh, subscription service. I do also, I mentioned I want to shout out the uh, Shout Factory Blu-ray because I, I do love physical media and still like to try and talk about it when I can. Shout Factory Blu-ray Streets of Fire is the best looking way you're going to see that movie. So uh, if you have the money and you're interested, that's definitely the way that I would recommend uh, checking it out. Outstanding. All right, Dylan, your selections for this episode? So yeah, uh, Fletch is available. I watched it on, I watched all three of these actually on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, So there's that. And then it's also, Fletch is available on YouTube and iTunes and all the other places that uh, Mike has mentioned. And the same goes actually for the the Pink Panther Strikes Again and Blues Brothers. All right. So Dylan, if people want to follow you on Twitter or social media, how can they find you? At Listen to Look on Twitter, capital L, capital L, and uh, Listen to Look on Instagram. Excellent. All right, Mike, if people want to follow you on social media. I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, and I am also uh, at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where, as I remind people every week, uh, we have the ongoing list of the 20th Century Movie Club recommendations that I update two to three days after every episode airs. Uh, I just updated it for the last episode, so we are now at 57 movies, uh, and this episode will kick us over 60, so there we go. That is awesome. All right, we're, we're well on our way to 100. So Nice. Excellent. Well, Dylan, I want to take just a moment and say thank you so much for joining us on the uh, on this episode. Uh, I thought your your picks were really good, and it's been awesome to talk to you. And I can assure you, this will not be the last time you're on the show. So I hope you'll uh, accept my invitation, come back, and join us anytime. Anytime. It's been a real pleasure. This I've been looking forward to this. Wanted to talk to you guys for a while. Thank you, Dana and Mike. Absolutely, no problem. And Mike, thank you as always.
Absolutely. Perfect. So my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.